Speaker Pelosi, you know, we had moments where we had we worked together when we legislated. Um, other moments where, you know, she wasn't exactly sending me uh, Hanukkah guilt. Welcome to Power Politics, the Mishpacha podcast exploring the flashpoints of American and global current affairs and how they impact the Jewish community. I'm Benjamin Rose, Mishpacha's editor-at-large. And I'm Maury Litwack, a two-decade veteran of political campaigns at Capitol Hill. Join us weekly as we delve into these critical topics and more on power politics. In today's program, is this really doomsday for democracy? Also, if President Biden runs for re-election, which is expected, will Kamala Harris still be his running mate? Our special guest today is Congressman Josh Gottheimer, a New Jersey Democrat, who toils day and night to make America bipartisan again. And of course, our influencer of the week and our fearless forecast. So we're going to start today with doomsday demography. We've heard the term for decades to scare Israel, that if they don't accept a two-state solution, then Israel will be overwhelmed by the Arab birth rate. That's proven to be false. The Jewish-Arab demography hasn't changed since the 1967 war. In fact, in 2022, there was still a 68% Jewish majority in the combined area of Judea, Samaria, and pre-1967 Israel. Now, we're hearing cries of doomsday democracy, that if the Netanyahu government passes its judicial reform plan, that will spell the end of democracy. And we heard it most recently from Antony Blinken, Secretary of State, when he came here last week to uh, visit Israel. He basically lectured uh, Netanyahu very sternly, from what I understand, that it would be much harder for the U.S. to support Israel if Israel is seen in American eyes as a less democratic society. And of course, the Biden administration would be the judge, jury, and hangman deciding uh, whether that was true or not. Now, there's no way of knowing if Bibi pushed back and how he pushed back, but Maury, if I were in that meeting, I would have pushed back with a poll that came out in the Texas Tribune from the Lyceum poll. This is an annual poll that's taken to uh, basically take the pulse of Texans. Remember, Texas is uh, America's second most populous state. It's very, very diverse. Uh, you might say it's the epitome of American diversity. And this year's poll shows that Texans are losing faith in democracy. I want to give a few numbers quickly, and then I want to hear your thoughts. Only 40% of the people polled in Texas strongly agree that democracy is the best form of government. That's down from 53% from four years ago. And only 38% said they were either very satisfied or somewhat satisfied with the way democracy is working in the U.S. Now, here's the key for me. While declines were apparent in the faith in democracy across all major age, ethnic, gender, and political groups, the declines were most apparent among political independents. And independents basically are the people who decide elections nowadays in America. Uh, anyone who wants to win the White House, anyone who wants to win a high elected position, you got to get the independent vote. Otherwise, you're not going to win. So if I were BB, I would have told Blinken that before you start getting nervous about our democracy, you might as well start getting nervous about your own. The study that comes to mind when you talk about this, especially in Texas, came out from Governing Magazine, I believe, some years ago. One in third Americans can't name their governor. 80% of Americans can't name their state legislator. Now, this is very important, these facts, because your state legislator is who decides your streets, your schools, your roads, all the day-to-day -day things that bother you. It's snowing where I am right now. Are the streets shoveled? That's something that local and state municipalities deal with. And the fact that Americans, 80%, don't know who these people are demonstrates to you the lack of um, civics education 
the need to really learn basics, not politics, not whether I should be a Democrat or Republican or independent, but just a erosion of education uh, when it comes to civics. Certainly, I don't agree that in America, there's a feeling or sense that democracy is failing or that Americans don't agree with democracy. But I do believe that there's just such a tremendous lack of education. And I think it extends, Benjamin, when we're talking about Israel and we're talking about when it's utilized, it's a, it's a very easy, convenient way to debate and discuss items to basically throw around the ideas of erosion of democracy, whether it's in America, when it is in Israel, that there's this problem. Certainly in our own country, we have to look at and examine it. But I think really two points. Number one is there is a problem and it's civics education in America. But the second piece of it is it's just a very dangerous thing, whether it's America or other countries talking about whether or not democracy is still alive or well, uh, which I believe it is, to do so in sort of a simple or uh, rote talking point. It just doesn't work. Maury, I would say that there could be two things driving the people in the Texas poll. One is election integrity. We know there's a lot of people who challenge the results of the presidential election. Maybe that's one reason they think democracy is failing, because they feel that elections are not as free and fair as they thought. It also could be the political paralysis that we hear about all the time. And people say, okay, if we can't get anything done in Washington, then uh, what good is democracy or how good is it working? Again, this is civics education, civics education, which is just basic stuff. Yes, it's important to learn about FDR trying to pack the courts. It's important to learn about Truman trying to break labor when he was president. Like, it's important to learn about these things, because if you read the newspapers, then they would say that there's democracy is at risk. I don't know if there's a president in America where there hasn't been the opposition saying democracy is at risk because of what they are doing at that moment. And so I I just think that civics education is what most of this comes down to, because there is a feeling either that politics, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, which is that politics is really bad now and there's a stalemate. And I know we're going to hear from our guest today about whether that's actually true or not. And there's a feeling also that is democracy a danger others? I just think, again, education, education, education. By the time you hear this program, President Biden will have given his State of the Union message in Congress. It's likely that he will announce his reelection plans sometime around the State of the Union speech. I would imagine at this point after rather than before, and certainly not at it. I think that would be inappropriate. And there are also reports that both he and Vice President Kamala Harris have already scheduled the first appearances to launch the reelection campaign. But last week, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, who's one of the leaders of the progressive Democrats, and Vice President Harris is one of them too. So Senator Warren seemed to cast some doubt whether Harris will be Biden's running mate the second time around. Let's give a listen to what she told an interviewer from WGBH, which is Boston's public radio station. I really want to defer to what makes Biden comfortable on his team. I've known Kamala for a long time. I like Kamala. I knew her back when she was attorney general and I was still teaching. And we worked on the housing crisis together. So we go way back. But they have to be a team. And my sense is they are. I don't mean that by suggesting I think there are any problems. I think they are. So, Maury, uh, Senator Warren sounded a little bit vague. Is she someone who's well-connected, who's trying to uh, tell us something that we don't know yet? Or is she angling uh, maybe to be uh, Biden's running mate if he runs again? What do you think? I don't think there's any insights here. I would be shocked, as I think with the entire political community, as I think the world, if Biden were to get rid of Kamala Harris. I don't think, as much as her polling has been bad, and we talked about her in a fearless forecast previously, the look and feel of getting rid of a vice president 
he does not have the height of popularity as FDR did. FDR frequently exchanged vice presidents and removed them. You had a situation with Nixon and Agnew where he had to get rid of Agnew. Like this is not the same situation. So I don't think this is like a pair of shoes where you change your pair of shoes and nobody sort of knows the difference. This is a very big deal to remove and change and replace a vice president. And he does not have the approval rating to sort of just do it haphazardly. And he does not have a problem with Kamala Harris where there is a scandal or an issue which requires replacement. This would be unprecedented. So I believe that this is just classic DC spin just to get a conversation going. Like you said, it's fairly unprecedented, but not totally. As you mentioned that FDR did change uh, vice presidents twice in his uh, third term and his fourth term. Also, uh, if you go way back to uh, the beginnings of America, the old Republican Party under Thomas Jefferson, so they dumped Aaron Burr as vice president in favor of George Clinton. Also in 1864, Abraham Lincoln replaced his vice president, Hannibal Hamlin, with Andrew Johnson. What I found really fascinating about that is that Hamlin and Lincoln apparently never met until after they won the election together. I do want to say one more thing, though, that this almost happened to Biden himself. And Maury, I would say this could be one of the reasons why he wouldn't do it. In addition to the reasons that you said, if we remember, uh, there was a book written on the 2012 campaign called Double Down by two Washington Post reporters. And it made a big fuss at the time because they wrote that the Obama administration officials were considering swapping out Biden with Hillary Clinton for the number two spot on the 2012 Democratic ticket. Obviously, it never happened, but it could happen, and uh, sometimes you have to expect the unexpected. Although I I would agree with you. I I don't know what Elizabeth Warren had in mind. Uh, It sounded as if she uh, fumbled the ball a bit on that. You know, there's no reason for her to cast uh, doubt or aspersions on the president. But I I do think she was indicating uh, some discomfort uh, with the fact that Biden and Harris may not be totally on the same page. Uh, maybe it was her way of warning that they really need to get their act together if they're going to be a, a strong team in 2024. Yeah, we talked about this last week. I did this in my forecast, which is that the idea that Kamala Harris is sort of doing a 2.0 a tour. So it's very possible she picked up the phone and called her friend, uh, Senator Warren, and said, let's float that and see how the media reacts. And the media reacted pretty negatively to it. So you never know. It reminds me of the story I'll close with, which is, When I was working in D.C., a pollster walked in an elevator with the congressman I was with, dropped a nasty rumor with a room full of elevator people, people in the elevator, and then walked out. And I and the congressman looked at him and said, what what was that gossip? He's like, well, I like to spread some gossip around D.C. and see how far it goes and travels. So like D.C. loves that. That's just classic D.C. spin and throwing stuff into the ether and seeing what happens. I want to welcome to the program a incredible public servant, from the New Jersey's 5th Congressional District, which represents Bergen and Passaic and Sussex and a bunch of other incredible counties. He's on the Financial Services Committee. He's on the Homeland Security Committee. He is my congressman, so I'm super excited to have him on. Uh, He's known as a leader in America, not just in New Jersey, not just in Congress, but really, literally there's nowhere you go where there's a major issue happening where Congressman Josh Gottheimer is not part of it. One of the things he's most known for And what I want to get into it right away with him on is he's the co-chair of the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus. And I remember being in shul where someone says to me, have you met Congressman Gottheimer? Because he has this crazy thing going on. This is a couple of years ago. This is his third term where the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus has 29 Democrats, 29 Republicans. Maybe it's more now. And they're actually trying to do this impossible thing, which is solve problems. Congressman, let's get right into it. What are you doing with this thing? How are you solving America's problems in a bipartisan way. So first of all, it's great to see you. Thank you for having me. 
And you're right, it's crazy. We're actually trying to govern. I mean, you think people send you here, they elect you, and all these people keep coming here, and then they just scream and yell at each other and don't try to actually get their job done. We're taking a different bent, as you pointed out, and that's been my approach since I got elected, of trying to figure out ways where we can sit down, Democrats and Republicans at the table, break bread, and uh, develop relationships and trust, and figure out where we can get to an 80% agreement versus insisting on 100% or nothing. It's been incredibly successful. As you said, the interest in the caucus has only grown every Congress. We now are just finalizing our class for this Congress. There's so many people interested, which is great. That's a high-class problem. But we're just trying to figure out, you can't just join. You actually go through a process where you have to engage with the other members, talk about your commitment to governing and to working together, to civility, uh, and putting country first. And so uh, the numbers will grow. And a divided Congress like we're facing right now with just a four-seat Republican majority, very similar to last Congress, we had a four-seat Democratic majority. There's a lot we can get done by working together like we did the last Congress. Congressman, can you walk us through a sample uh, conversation that you might have with the Republican and uh, how uh, you would try to get that Republican on board? Uh, about any issue? About any issue. You know, I, I think mine, though, it's a, it's a really good question. I've never been asked that question before. If you get the award for the day... You know, my general belief of what's important and in, in getting to an agreement, whether that's in the last COVID package under President Trump, which we helped negotiate the problem solvers caucus, we led the House negotiations. That was for the second round of PPP and resources for the, the original COVID vaccines. And then, you know, last Congress, we got bipartisan legislation across the finish line on China chips, you know, building chips in the United States of America on uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which I helped write and pass, Compton's gun safety legislation, legislation to support our veterans, legislation to support law enforcement, fund, not defund law enforcement. On all these areas, every conversation that I find effective starts not with me speaking, but with me listening. Because around here, people spend a lot of time talking and not enough time trying to understand what's actually important to the other side that you're negotiating with. Often I find that, and, I, and I've made this mistake myself, that you know I've read something publicly, uh, I've seen something out there, and I, I just presume what the issue or the hang-up is for the other side. And then when I actually I sit down and have a constructive conversation, I realize and listen and do intense listening, I realize, well, wait a second, actually, their big issue is solvable. It's not actually the issue I thought we can solve that problem. And that's often how the deals get done because we are able to get past the issues that the other side is having. This week, there was a terrible incident in New Jersey. A shul was firebombed. And I saw that you were one of the first people, if not the first elected official on the scene there. Can you talk through as someone who's a member of the community, as someone who has also been dealing with anti-Semitism since you've been elected, before you've been elected, you've been at Rutgers campus dealing with some of the issues that happened there. You've been all over. You've seen the many layers of it. Can you walk our listeners through what is happening and what are our elected officials doing and what should other elected officials be doing that you're not seeing? Well, I mean, I think you, you both know better than anybody the heart-wrenching surge and anti-Semitic attacks, not, of course, only in New Jersey, but around the country, up a third year over year, according to the ADL nationwide, up 25% in New Jersey. New Jersey is the second highest number of incidents in the country, second only to New York. And re these are all record numbers. So we've got a broad, a really broad crisis going on when it comes to anti-Semitism. 
Last week, I introduced in a significant bipartisan way on Friday, Holocaust Remembrance legislation to ensure uh, that we understand what we're teaching our children in schools across the country about the Holocaust. Uh, basically, a full audit of, sh of education around Shoah and what's being taught, is it being taught, where is it being taught. Unfortunately, it's very spotty in a lot of places in the country, and what's being taught is spotty. And as a result, what I worry about, especially as the generations pass that you know, saw it with their own eyes, um, experienced it themselves, that as that distance grows, the understanding of why you and I may respond and have deep concerns about certain tropes, about certain comments, about you know, the significance of a swastika, and when extremism, wherever it comes up, wherever it lies politically, or misinformation is spewed, the impact that it can have and the risks and the long-term danger it can impose on Jewish people, frankly, like any hate targeted to any community. So I went to the temple last week in Bloomfield. I, like I often visit a lot of shuls where there's been an incident or if it's in a school, I'll talk to the superintendent or the principal immediately. You know, whether it's in northern New Jersey or, frankly, anywhere in New Jersey, as the Jewish member of the delegation, I'm the only Jewish member of the congressional delegation. You know, the number one thing I always start with is, okay, so how are we using this moment? How are you using this moment, if you're a school or a temple, to teach and to prevent this from ever occurring again? Because the initial reaction is often, well, let's just make this go away. Let's sweep it under the rug because, you know, it's too hard to talk about or I don't want people to think that this is what it's like here. So let's just try to make it go away as fast as possible. And I, I, I often think that's exactly the wrong reaction to have, that a school should take a, a moment to say, how do we learn from this? In the case of the temple, A, is the shul prepared, God forbid, it were to happen again? B, is every temple and shul in the area properly protected and safeguarded? As this temple, by the way, had done a phenomenal job getting nonprofit security grants and, and other resources to have cameras in place. The door where the Mothoff cocktail was thrown through or attempted to thrown through actually had protection on the glass, so it didn't go inside the temple. It hit the glass, the glass shattered, but then it basically bounced back, couldn't get through the fire, thank God. But are we doing everything possible? And the other thing that I've learned is we have to speak out about these things and and not just Jews, to your point, right? That I really call on when these things happen, all elected officials and all community members and people from all different faiths, you know, leaders from all different faiths to speak out. And I push for it very hard. And sometimes, listen, my colleagues, you know, look at me and say, again, we're, we're again, we're doing this. And frankly, my answer is, yeah, until they stop, we're going to keep doing it. And I, you know, I don't let these things go because we can't afford to. And I feel very strongly about that. Congressman, unfortunately, there's also a lot of hate and uh, violent acts on the international level. You've sponsored H.R. 340, which is the Hamas International Financing Prevention Act, and also H.C. Resolution 7, which condemns human rights abuses in Iran. So my first question is, what will H.R. 340 do that isn't being done now? Because I understand that Hamas is already considered a terror organization. So I'm wondering what layer your resolution might add that uh, we don't have right now. What's well, ensuring sanction anyone who does business with Iran? The problem with a lot of sanctions that we've imposed as a country is they go on for a period of time, they roll off, they usually have windows uh, of time, and then they occur. They, there's certain business you can do that's allowed, certain business that is not allowed under these sanctions. 
this particular bill ensures that anyone who does business with Hamas or Palestinian jihad, that it, it precludes people from engaging in doing business and helps fill a hole that was a gap in the system. You know, and, and you know, again, part of the challenge, if you look at Iran, I'm sure you've seen the discussion, is we're, we're always looking and saying, well, when are certain sanctions, we say, rolling off, like one of these sanctions going away. And so you have to just constantly be vigilant as a legislature to make sure that sanctions don't fall off. And broadly speaking, I have several pieces of legislation that I've introduced, several pieces of legislation that we've passed, standing up to Iran. Now introducing legislation, as you point out, supporting people in Iran who, who stand up to their government in support of human rights violations that are going on, you know, and, and sort of in support of protecting human rights against the violations that are going on. And I think it's critical. You know, I, I have been very vocally critical of Iran since before I was in, elected to Congress. I was uh, aggressive in my beliefs that the Iran deal, JCPOA, was bad for the United States of America, for our national security. Obviously, it put our allies at risk. I think Iran, as we've seen, you know, in the, even in the last months with their deepening ties to China and Russia, has proven that they are consistent liars. And the fears that many of us had about not just their nuclear program, but frankly, their terror program, and this is where going back to your question on sanctions, right, their terror program has never ceased. Their support for Hamas and Hezbollah and Palestinian Jihad and others, and their weaponization, which, as you know, from everything that's been publicly reported, their breakout period, their time to being will have full nuclear capability is within weeks if they want it. And so that imperils our national security, our fight against terror, the safety and security of our key allies in the region. And so I think from a legislative perspective, I will continue to be aggressive. I've led many public statements and letters to this administration over the last two years with Democrats and Republicans, reminding them that doing business with Iran is, in my opinion, unacceptable. And these deals that had been on the table are unacceptable. I'm glad that we're in a position that the administration's pulled back, but I think it's proven out uh, why, especially given their recent interactions and support and weapons that they've sent to Russia. Is there anything more the U.S. government can and should be doing to support regime change in Iran? I think we've been right now very involved in supporting those who are standing up to the government there. I know a lot more in a classified setting that I can't really talk about, but I believe the United States is taking a lot of the right steps uh, on the ground. I want to get back one question, please, a follow-up on the uh, Problem Solvers sure. Caucus. We have new congressional leadership now, uh, both in the Republican side and uh, the Democratic side. Are they more favorable, would you say, than the previous leadership to uh, the goals of the Problem Solvers Caucus? And do you think it'll be easier or harder for you to work in this regard? It's a great question. Uh, you know, I have a good relationship with uh, Leader Jeffries. I've especially spent a lot of time over the years talking with him about the U.S.'s relationship and the importance there. And uh, my co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus, who I co-chair with Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania, the Republican, and who's one of my dearest friends, he, he's got a very good relationship with Speaker McCarthy. Those are good things that we have those relationships. But both of us are not afraid to disagree when we have to, to stand up when we have to. You know, um, Speaker Pelosi, you know, 
we had moments where we had we worked together when we legislated. Um, other moments where you know she wasn't exactly sending me uh, Hanukkah guilt because my job is I don't work for a national political party. I work for the people I represent, and I believe deeply in two party solutions, which you know is not always what aligned with our leadership. But Brian and I understand that. The good news is we have a very good open door relationship with our leaders. And I don't hide things from our leaders when we're working on things like we are right now on the debt ceiling in a bipartisan way. You know, I let our leadership know that we're working. The conversations, of course, are confidential, but I let them know what we're doing. So I just have one final question for you, which is uh, we have a lot of young listeners, and I know you've spoken to a lot of uh, students in general and colleges and things like that. We talked about earlier in the program almost like an erosion of democratic excitement about the idea of democracy. People just don't trust their elected officials. People don't trust government. People don't trust things. What would you say to listeners who feel that, who feel like this is just, um, I think it's very unique what you're doing and what you're trying and attempting to do. I'm sure you hear from a lot of people being like, roll their eyes and say, yeah, sure, you're trying to do that. Good luck to you. So there just seems to be this overarching cynicism and pessimism. And is it civics education? What can you say? Give us some inspiration to leave. Let's just say that not everyone is constructive of having as constructive a conversation as Mishpucha is. You're asking substantive questions and having a real discussion here about issues. The unfortunate reality is that if you watch cable news or watch social media or read social media, it's all driven by trying to get clicks. And even a lot of our news is so driven now by just getting that two-second engagement and to make money. You know, these cable shows and a lot of the social media channels are not in the business of they're not the Red Cross. They're trying to make a profit, and they've decided the best way to make a profit is to put as incendiary headlines as possible and information on there because that will draw more followers and more engagement. When Brian and I work together and govern, right, and actually get things done, and I told you the, the litany of some of the things we got done, legislation, we got across the finish line by sitting down, Democrats and Republicans, in the House, and we work with a group in the Senate, the Problem Solvers Caucus, every week committed to the idea of actually governing of taking that 80%. The bomb throwers, the extremists, who are not into common sense and being reasonable, they focus on the 20% of fighting, right? They spend all their time on the 20% of disagreement, right? And they spend all their time there screaming and yelling and screaming and yelling and attacking each other. And it's better programming on cable news, right? Because the fight. I got a 10-year-old boy. I take him to the devil's game. Within two seconds, he looks at me and goes, Dad, when's the fight? When are they going to fight? I said, Ben, we've been here 30 seconds. That's the problem now, right? So then people, young people especially, right? They live a lot on social media online. They you know, may not all have uh, the time to listen to this full conversation. They then just see, oh, these guys are like clowns. All they do is fight. They focus on like the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the AOCs, right? The extremes, the, the Freedom Caucus and the squad. That's what they see. And they see the extreme positions. And then there's all of us here that actually are governing and getting it done and passing the infrastructure bill to help build the fix the roads, bridges, and tunnels in New Jersey, uh, and our water infrastructure, and right in broadband, and the things they experience day to day, or the common sense legislation support our veterans, and those exposed to burn pits, which we got done, that, that, and stand up to China. Those are the things that have to get done for our country. But I get it. If they don't get to see all that, they just assume it's all the fighting. And that could be very frustrating to folks like me because, the, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're, Maura, you've been great about talking to me about the Problem Solvers Caucus. When I tell people that and they're like, really, that's happening? They can't believe it. It's why don't you get more attention? I say, because no one goes down to the, by the Washington Monument 
or the Lincoln Memorial with a, uh, a sign that says, work together, get it done, right? That's like just not what people show up to Washington about. Right. They show up to throw bombs at each other. And we get a focus on anti-Semitism and talk about that, unfortunately, after an incident, right? It takes just a disgraceful incident like what happened this past weekend to bring the conversation to the fore. But it shouldn't be that way. Uh, but that is just kind of the reality that we're living in. But I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to stop doing my job fighting for the people I represent, for the issues I represent, whether it's supporting U.S.-Israel relationship, which is key to our national security, whether it's fighting anti-Semitism, all the issues of investing in our infrastructure, supporting cops, you know, the things that we've done, I'm not going to back off of, even if it gets less attention, because I didn't come here to just scream and yell and get nothing done. Like, well, what's the point of doing that? Amazing. Thank you very much, Congressman Gottheimer. Very inspiring. Thank you so much for having me. Maury, my big takeaway to that interview is listening, not talking. Listen to what the other person's saying, and you have a much better chance of getting things done. I think my takeaway is, is exactly the same. I think it's great that our first elected official we had on the podcast is someone who's trying to get stuff done. Bipartisan, not partisan politics. He's just talking about talkless. And I think for our listeners, that's going to be their takeaway as well. Okay, so now we've come to the Influencer of the Week. As we're actually doing this recording, it's a Wednesday, and we're waiting a decision from the Federal Reserve Board if they're going to raise interest rates. It's clear to me that Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, is the Influencer of the Week. The Fed is the largest central bank in the world, the most influential central bank in the world. America's economy is the largest and most influential economy in the world. Everyone follows the lead of the U.S. Everyone follows the leader. And Jay Powell basically uh, has the whole world in his hands uh, when it comes to interest rate decisions, which affect uh, the strength of the economy, which affect uh, the rate of inflation, which affect unemployment and uh, eventually corporate profits as well. With every Fed meeting, everyone is waiting with bated breath to see exactly what he decides and when he decides and how much he decides to move. Then uh, he is uh, the influencer, certainly, of this week. It's a very good pick. Everyone's waiting. We'll see what happens. Everyone's waiting. The whole economic world. My influencer of the week is a name that I don't think most of the listeners know. It's Governor Spencer Cox of Utah. Governor Cox is my influencer of the week because the governor passed school choice legislation, which provides universal school choice funding for anyone to send their kids to a private school, non-public school. The reason why he's my influencer of the week is because there's a lot of language right now about school choice and about a revolution coming, which is a very meaningful for people sending their kids to yeshivas, which is very something that I've been hearing and getting texts about and people are really excited about. It. But I think the governor of Utah is the person because he didn't just pass school choice legislation. He passed it while giving a $6,000 per teacher increase to the public school teachers as well, which is very clever. And that's dynamics that work. That's how you create bipartisan uh, environments. That's how you win. That's how you get things done. And literally the next day, uh, or a few days later, I'm sorry, Governor DeWine in Ohio, he announced major school choice legislation. And there's talk about more coming, which helps families. So I think the governor of Utah is my influencer of the week, just because it is a wrinkle on something that really our community cares greatly about and is something that I think is really starting to see a revolution occur. To me, you can't pay a good teacher enough. They deserve everything that uh, they can possibly get. Now... Time for my fearless forecast. I don't think that uh, this forecast is quite as fearless as some of the ones I've made recently, but 
I do say that uh, sometime in the next week that the Israeli government is going to uh, pass the first reading of the judicial reform plan, and it's going to pass with a wider margin than anyone expects. And uh, I'm also uh, beginning to understand why this is so important. I, I did a little homework today. Both Esther Chayut, who is the president of the Supreme Court, and Anat Baron, both of them are two of the most liberal justices on the Israeli Supreme Court, they hit their mandatory retirement this year in October. They hit 70, they both have to leave. That's the law. And next year, next October, Uzi Vogelman, who's the deputy president of the Israeli Supreme Court, and who's also an extremely liberal justice, hits his mandatory retirement age. So basically, you've got three huge vacancies in the next uh, year and 10 months, and anyone who gets control of the uh, selection committee is uh, going to have a tremendous opportunity to uh, either keep the court in its liberal bent or to turn it around and make it more conservative. So that's why the Netanyahu government has to move now. And uh, they have to make sure that uh, they can beat back the opposition because uh, this is their once-in-a-lifetime chance, just like Donald Trump had, to uh, remake the court in their own image. And if they don't do it now, they'll never have the chance to do it. So uh, I say they're going to move on this very fast. My fearless forecast is called... I doubt it with the debt ceiling. I doubt it. All talk. There's a lot of media attention right now on it. Will McCarthy blink? Will Biden blink? In 1917, the first debt ceiling was created during World War I. It was raised 74 times from 1962 to 2011. 18 times under Reagan. Eight times under Clinton. Seven times under George W. Bush. And five times under Obama. When you look at that, when you think about that, there's never been a situation where they haven't raised the debt ceiling. So it's a great talking point. It's a great story. The media feeds off of crisis. And it's a great thing to say. It's a debt ceiling. No one wants to hit the ceiling. Right, Benjamin? No one wants to hit the ceiling. But I'm saying I doubt it. I think this is all talk. They're going to raise the debt ceiling way before June. I think it's a great narrative, a great first test for a Republican House and a Democratic president. But I doubt it. I think this is over in a few weeks, and we're not going to hear about this anymore. They're going to raise the debt ceiling. My question is, is why they have to take votes on it all the time. They might as well just uh, go to some unlimited uh, uh, debt ceiling so that uh, they don't have to do it. Uh, basically, people are going to continue buying American bonds to finance the U.S. debt. And, you know, this threat that comes up uh, every year, which is just, you know, real political football, is basically, to me, it's a waste of time. You know, borrow what you need until... You get to a point where the economy gets growing again and revenues start outpacing spending and, and then maybe you can do some spending cuts as well and uh, try to get the budget under control or at least better control. Because in America, we like the drama, even though we know, like, like in you call it, why do you have to have the American football? Because just like we like to pretend there's 32 teams in the NFL in America and every year the Kansas City Chiefs or the Patriots make it. Similarly, we have to pretend we might not get the debt ceiling, Benjamin, but here we are. Well, that wraps it up for today. Once again, thanks for joining us and we look forward to hearing your comments, your thoughts. Uh, again, if you have any uh, ideas for guests or any topics that you'd like to hear us discuss, please drop us a line. Let us know. You are listening to Power Politics, unpacking the power players shaping our world, a Mishpacha podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating and share with your friends. Have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a guest to suggest? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on Twitter at the Mishpacha or at mishpacha.com forward slash power politics. This episode was produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts with sound design by Cedar Media Studios. See you next week.